Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I am thankful for the privilege to be here with you these days. I would like to express my gratitude to your president and particular to Dr. Shaddix for extending an invitation to me. Uh, for several years, I've had great respect for jo- Dr. Shaddix, as well as a number of the faculty members that are here. So I regard it really, truly as a wonderful privilege. Thank you, and uh, I'll look forward to spending these days with you and interacting with you. Somebody's phone is going off. If that ain't Jesus, turn it off. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Do you recognize by chance the name of Dr. Paul Ebert? He's in heaven now, but for many years he served as a missiologist at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And as you may recognize from his name, Ebert, his origins were very distinctly Mennonite. Dr. Ebert was known on many occasions to describe his own Mennonite heritage in the following way. The first generation of Mennonites were people preoccupied with the gospel, but who also felt that there were certain social responsibilities for which they needed to be concerned. The second generation of Mennonites were people who assumed the gospel and became increasingly absorbed with social responsibility. The third generation of Mennonites abandoned the gospel and have consequently become altogether preoccupied with social responsibility. Preoccupied, assumed, Abandoned. What a frightening trajectory. For the last 12 years, I have been in Portland, Oregon, serving on the faculty of the seminary there. And during those 12 years, I've been in dozens, perhaps hundreds of churches, churches of different sizes and denominations, Traditional churches, contemporary churches, liturgical churches, ethnic churches, inner city churches, rural churches, emerging churches. All of that doesn't make me infallible. It doesn't make me even an expert. But I can say now with some measure of integrity and credibility this morning that the American evangelical church is now at that second stage of Ebert's own description of Mennonitism. Assuming the gospel and perhaps only one generation away from abandoning it. Over the last several years, I've had occasion to sit through entire worship services without the name of Jesus Christ ever once being mentioned, let alone any substantive declaration of his death, burial, and resurrection. When I first arrived in Portland 12 years ago, I was invited to preach in a church on a communion Sunday of all things, so I preached the middle paragraph of Isaiah 53. He was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to violently assault him. Shortly after the service was finished, a woman approached me and said, I've been attending this church for two decades, and I can tell you that this is the first time I've heard the word sin mentioned from our pulpit in six years. And of course, what instantly ran through my mind was, if they're not hearing sin, then they're not hearing the gospel. Preoccupied. Assumed. 
abandoned? Some time ago, I was preaching in a very large independent church in a suburb of Portland, a wonderful, wonderful congregation. And after I had finished, an elderly gentleman approached me, introduced himself to me as one of the deacons of the church. He warmly grabbed my hand in both of his and said, for years, 50 years, I was a member of various conservative Baptist churches. I was converted in a conservative Baptist church. I was taught the word of God in a conservative Baptist church. And then he said to me rather wistfully, if you ever get the opportunity to speak to conservative Baptist pastors, would you please, please tell them to return to the preaching of the gospel? Now, friends, that's not to slam conservative Baptist churches. He could have just as easily been speaking of the Evangelical Free Church or the Baptist General Conference or the Plymouth Brethren Fellowship. My point is, these are not liberal churches. They're not even neo-Orthodox. To the contrary, these are congregations that, at least on paper, would be as historically Orthodox as anybody here in this room. Preoccupied. Assumed, abandoned? How does such a thing happen? That the gospel, once loved and cherished, becomes marginalized by people who simultaneously affirm their commitment to the scriptures. How does it happen that the gospel of Jesus Christ gets lost inside of a ministry that at least by confession proclaims its intention to promote the glory of God and the conversion of the nations? How does the gospel get set aside? How does the gospel get neglected and then forgotten and then finally regarded as irrelevant? How is it that the chief and supreme thing ceases to breathe, ceases to be the supreme and central thing? Well, my friends, there are, to be sure, many reasons for this. In my view, however, there is one primary reason that underlies all others. Of all of Paul's letters, the two that have been preserved for us as 1 and 2 Corinthians are filled with what has been referred to as Christian paradoxes. That is, statements that seem to be, at least on surface, self-contradictory. For example, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about strength that is perfected in what? Weakness. That sounds contradictory, doesn't it? In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul mentions poor men who make others rich. He talks about those who have nothing but possess all things. He talks about being sorrowful but always rejoicing, about being unknown yet well-known, about dying yet living. In 1 Corinthians 7, of all things, he speaks about married men who are to live as if they have no wives. Paradox after paradox is woven into the fabric of these Corinthian letters, but at the very heart of all these secondary paradoxes is the great and ultimate paradox that appears right here in the opening chapter of this first letter. The paradox of the gospel itself. That is, the seemingly contradictory fact that a weak and foolish message contains the power and wisdom of God himself. And Paul, you see, at the very outset of this letter, addresses this matter head-on because the Corinthians, well, quite frankly, they had grown ashamed of the gospel. They were living in a day that prized philosophy and high-mindedness, the endless discussion of intellectual novelties and sophistications. Why do we think that postmodernism is such a new thing? Consequently, what ended up buzzing around the Corinthian Christians? The message of that gospel? The message of a crucified Savior? A bloody cross? You've got to be kidding me. What kind of Messiah is that? How, and the word here used in the original text, how moronic, how foolish, how impotent. You can imagine the cultural pressure that the Corinthians were living with in the marketplace, for example, where business is transacted. In the public square where ideas are debated, it was an embarrassment to the Corinthians, a humiliation. And so right out of the chutes, Paul comes directly at this attitude. He says, as it were, now here is a paradox, my 
Corinthian brothers and sisters. The very things that seem weak and foolish to the world around you are the very things that display the glory of God, in particular God's power and God's wisdom. And then Paul, you see, moves forward to prove his point by drawing upon three lines of evidence. So let's start at the bottom, as it were, and kind of work our way up. Notice that in chapter 2, 1 to 5, that God's power and wisdom are displayed in the weak and foolish ministers who attempt to accomplish his work. Paul writes, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Think about me, Corinthians, when I showed up there in Corinth. Well, there was nothing impressive about me, was there? Truth be told, I was altogether unimpressive. But that's the very point I'm making. The things that seem weak and foolish to the world around you are the very things that display the power and the wisdom of God. In this case here, a weak and foolish preacher. I can't get beyond the fact that here in chapter 2, verse 3, when Paul distinguishes himself as characterized by weakness and fear and trembling, I can't help but realize that there is no megachurch in America today who would ever hire the Apostle Paul. How's that going to look to a search committee? He's weak. He's fearful, and he shakes a lot. No, we want tall, handsome, strong, charismatic, compelling, and sometimes in acts of judgment, God gives us that very thing just as he gave Saul to the people of Israel. Now move your eyes up one paragraph and take note of Paul's second line of evidence in chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and see that God's power and wisdom are displayed in the weak and foolish people he has determined to save. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Let me remind you, Corinthians, that you were not saved because in getting you, God was getting something really good, that somehow you could contribute to God in any way, shape, or form. To the contrary, you were the bottom of the barrel. But that's the point. Your obvious unworthiness and weakness and foolishness is what serves to magnify the glory of God. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The things that seem weak and foolish to the world around you are the very things that display God's power and wisdom. In this case, a weak and foolish people, very similar to a weak and foolish preacher. But these two lines of evidence are predicated upon and subsequent to a much more fundamental line of evidence introduced even earlier in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, where we see that God's power and wisdom are displayed in the weak and foolish message that provides salvation for those who believe. Verse 18 of chapter 1. For the message of the cross is moronic. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, 
I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I do need to be honest and let you know that very often when I speak about these kinds of things, I'm often labeled as being obscurantist, old-fashioned, antiquated, out of touch, not nearly sensitive enough to our postmodern milieu. But I would beg you to understand that the issue I'm getting at here is not about being old-fashioned. It's not about having a taste for things that are more in keeping with a generation gone by. We have to be contemporary. It's simply being sensitive to the generation that Jesus Christ has called us to reach. Contemporaneity is not the issue that disturbs me. The issue that disturbs me is the radical inconsistency that exists between the message of a bloody cross and the slick, sophisticated Spielberg-like methods of communicating it. And the point is, when the message and the methods of communicating it are inconsistent, it is the message itself that inevitably gets scuttled. I don't know how many of you have a taste for classical music. My guess is not many, and that's perfectly okay. I earned my living as a classical musician before I was converted. Some of you may recognize the name Yehudi Menuhin, one of the greatest classical violinists of all time. And on one occasion, he was asked to divine the secret of his genius, to which he offered a one-word explanation. Surrender. The violinist must surrender to the violin. And in much the same way, you see, we must surrender to the message. It is what must always reign supreme. And yet, my friends, it is our failure at this very point that has brought us to our present situation, professing to be evangelical apart from a preoccupation with the evangel. Consequently, we become a shell with very little substance inside. In many cases, big shells, glamorous shells, extravagant shells, envious shells, and yet only shells because in all of our ambition to be successful, we desperately fear the one thing that defines the glory of the gospel. And that is that in the eyes of the world, it will always be regarded as the weak and foolish thing. Now, all of this does raise a question in my mind. I would expect that it would be aroused in your own mind. Why in the world would any one of us wish to be the proclaimer of a message you know the world will regard as foolish? Why would you do this? In chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 21 God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Why would anybody sign up to proclaim that word? Of all things, why would anybody choose to be a preacher if God would allow him to do anything else? I mean, all things being equal. I have no desire to be regarded as foolish uninformed, uncultured, unsophisticated, why would anybody proclaim a message so universally regarded as moronic? Why set yourself up for such abuse? And the answer is, my dear brothers and sisters, because of the origination of this message. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. Now, some manuscripts read the mystery of God, but at the end of the day, the difference is very slight and have no real significance in terms of the emphasis I'm intending to make. Notice simply how Paul refers to the content of his preaching. 
the testimony of God. The NIV has led us astray a bit, translating this the testimony about God, but this is not an objective genitive, Paul's own testimony about God. This is a subjective genitive, God's own testimony. You say, what's the difference? Well, it's one thing to speak up at a Bible study and to say, um, I would like to give testimony to what God is doing in my life. Those kinds of things can be wonderfully encouraging, can't they? However, it is another thing altogether for a person to show up and say, I bring you a testimony from God himself. And that's what Paul is saying right here. The message I brought to you was not the offspring of reason. It was the gift of revelation. In other words, this message did not grow out of the creative genius of a man, nor does it reflect the collective wisdom of a group of first century mystics or philosophers. This message has originated with God. And there, my friends, is the reason why some of us are prepared to lose everything for that message rather than compromise it. It is this conviction that grows out of an understanding that this is God's message to us. And by the way, what is the content of this testimony from God? Verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I might add, this was always Paul's approach wherever he went. And I say this, young men and women, because uh, there are those who will suggest to us that just before Paul went to Corinth, he was in Athens. And while there, according to Acts 17, he attempted a rather novel approach in his preaching. Well, these new people, te- these people tell us that his new technique was such a miserable failure that by the time he got to Corinth, he'd straighten himself out and his new resolve was to preach only Christ. But not only does this reveal a woeful ignorance of the overall book of Acts, which relentlessly displays Paul's pattern to preach Christ wherever he went, it also reveals a predisposition against a simple reading of Acts 17, which tells us that when Paul was in Athens, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Moreover, Luke does tell us that people were saved under Paul's preaching at Mars Hill, that it wasn't such a miserable failure after all. So when Paul says here, I determined, I resolved, he's not referring to a radical adjustment he's now made after his debacle in Athens. If any contrast is to be found here, it was with the Greek philosophers and rhetoricians so prominently valued in Corinth, continually spouting off their own imaginations. To the contrary, Paul's message, the message from which he never allowed himself to deviate, originated with God, verse 1, centered on Jesus Christ, verse 2, and if you allow me to throw in verse 4 for good measure, a message distinguished by the Spirit's power, then we have here a full Trinitarian basis for our ministry. We proclaim God's testimony, internally verified by the power of the Spirit of God, concerning his Son. This is what it means to preach Christianly. That every message needs to be vitally connected to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's not that we look for Jesus in every verse. It's that we ask ourselves, where does this passage stand in relationship to Jesus Christ? It's not to say that every message needs to be evangelistic. It is to say that every message needs to be evangelical. A good friend of ours says, true Christian preaching must center on the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the central doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. All other revealed truths either find their fulfillment in the cross or are necessarily founded upon it. Therefore, no doctrine of Scripture may faithfully be set before men unless it is displayed in its relationship to the cross. The one who is called to preach, therefore, must preach Christ because there is no other message from God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can't complain with Paul's clarity 
But of course, it does beg the question, why? Why is Jesus Christ and him crucified to be the nucleus of all Christian preaching? Allow me to give you three very brief reasons. Firstly, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We preach the cross. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. My dear brothers and sisters, over against everything else we do, the glory of God in the salvation of sinners is our work. Have you forgotten this? It's why we always preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's a second reason, and that is because Jesus Christ is the focal point of all biblical revelation. Oh, I suppose if I, another, if I had another 90 minutes with you, that's exactly what I would do. I would seek to show you how the entire Bible ruthlessly points us to Jesus Christ. You know, for example, Luke chapter 24 Jesus showing his men how the entire Old Testament points to him. If I could go back at any moment in all of biblical history without question, it would be Luke 24 with Jesus on the road to the Emmaus and later with his disciples in the upper room. I read Luke 24, maybe you do too, and you think to yourself, oh, how I wish I had been there to listen to the resurrected Lord interpret the Old Testament and how in particular all of it was designed to lead us to him. But the point is, I didn't need to be there, nor did you. You say, well, Art, how then do I figure out how the Old Testament points to Jesus? That's easy. Study the sermons in the book of Acts where the apostles apply the interpretive method that was taught them by the Lord. Old Testament texts in all of their sermons relentlessly used to point to Jesus Christ. All you need to do is read the epistles, all of which are built on Old Testament notions and the book of Revelation. Stop interpreting that by the newspaper and discover, as Greg Beale says, that nearly every clause is drawn from the Old Testament. Now, you see, some of us here in this room were taught that the apostles, well, they could do things with the Old Testament that we must never do, which frankly never made much sense to me that they, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were supposedly allowed to do eisegesis, strip things out of context, and use them in a way never imagined by the original human author, but because I'm not an apostle, I can't do that? Oh, for some of us who were taught that way, how the apostles used the Old Testament, that was a skeleton in our closet. I would beg you to understand, that's not a skeleton in your closet, it's a skeleton key that unlocks the door. You make a hermeneutical choice, my friends, every time you open up your Bible, just understand the choice you're deciding between. Do you want a hermeneutic that is the product of 18th century scholastic rationalism, or do you want a hermeneutic that is apostolic and more than that, Christian? You say, but Art, I'm afraid of what that'll do to my theological system. Well, maybe you should be. I would argue that you have not yet been faithful to the spirit-intended purpose of this book if you rightly exegete its parts but fail to see how it fits into the whole of the Bible. So that, my dear brothers and sisters, you need to have two sets of lenses when you study the Word of God. You need, on the one hand, an exegetical magnifying glass so that you can examine with close scrutiny the details of a passage. Thirty-five years later, I'm still parsing verbs. Thirty-five years later, I'm still diagramming sentences. But that is not enough you also need a theological fish-eye lens to see how that passage, in all of its details, fits into the overall redemptive emphasis of the Bible. You have to ask yourself at any point in time, how does this little story contribute to the telling of the big story? 
Our preaching is to always be of Jesus and him crucified because he is the focal point of all biblical revelation. And there is a third reason why our preaching is to center upon Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that is quite frankly, friends, because we are seeking to be faithful to the command of Jesus and the model of apostolic practice. Go into all the world and share the gospel? No, no, no. You don't share. Don't come up to me after the sermon and say, thanks for sharing. Anytime anybody says that, you know they don't know a darn thing about preaching. You don't share, you declare. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Now, you may be a little bit nervous about the end of Mark chapter 16. That's okay. You've got Luke 24 and Matthew 28 and John chapter 20. And, of course, Acts chapter 1, you shall be my witnesses. In other words, your witness will be of me. It was the command of Jesus that our preaching should be of him. And what's more, our apostolic forefathers have provided us with a faithful pattern to follow. Listen to this. Listen to this. Let me just give you a couple of obvious things. Acts 5 says, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Acts chapter 8, verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Acts chapter 8, verse 35, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Acts chapter 8, verse 40, Philip appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Acts chapter 11, verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 17, Paul shows up at the synagogue in Thessalonica, and as was his custom, for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. If I put you on a bus this afternoon with just an Old Testament, could you use it to lead people to Christ? Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 15, that that's the reason you have the Old Testament. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Galatians 3.1, you foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified. Ephesians 3.8, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints. In fact, Paul invents a word there, the leaster, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. Now you say, Art, come on. You're not really being altogether honest. All the passages you've referred to have an evangelistic emphasis. No one would question you. You're at Southeastern Seminary, man. We understand mission. Of course, in evangelistic settings, we must preach Christ. But let me ask you then, friends. How long was Paul in Corinth? Book of Acts tells you. 18 months. Year and a half. In other words, his stay was not that of a short-term evangelistic crusade. And yet he says here in verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not just preaching that is evangelistic. It is preaching that is evangelical. It's not just the regurgitation of the four spiritual laws over and over and over. It's preaching that is evangelical. You say, so what does this involve? Well... In the most elementary expression possible, bordering on simplistic, just unpack this here. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus. Hmm. Speaks of a person. Jesus. A man. That forces us to deal with the mystery of the Incarnation, doesn't it? Is he fully human? 
Is he fully divine? Is he 50-50, 80-20? What's the interplay between these two natures? And by the way, by what means did he get here to begin with? Did he sin? Could he have sinned? Is he still human at this moment? I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus, the Messiah. That speaks of his office, that he is the promised king. The fulfillment of dozens, perhaps hundreds, of Old Testament prophecies. Literal and typological. He is great David's greater son who has taken his place on David's throne and begun to reign. Pentecost is the proof of that. Read Acts chapter 2. But has his kingdom been consummated? When will it be consummated? How will it be consummated? What will it look like when it's consummated? For I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him Crucified? That speaks of his work. Why crucified? What about us has necessitated his crucifixion? For whom was he crucified? What was accomplished in his crucifixion? What are the consequences of his crucifixion? And hmm, did anything significant happen subsequent to his crucifixion? May I suggest to you that 18 months is not sufficient enough time to plumb the depths of the person, the offices, and the work of Jesus Christ? That 18 years are an insufficient time to accomplish such a thing? In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This doesn't mean that all of our preaching needs to be evangelistic. It means that all of our preaching needs to be evangelical. That we cannot divorce the gospel from the rest of the Bible. Rather, my friends, that the rest of the Bible now comes to you through the grid of the gospel. That we now interpret all of Revelation from Revelation's highest point, the coming of God in Jesus Christ. And to understand, to seek to understand the Bible apart from this as the starting point, is as silly, quite frankly, as attempting to understand American history apart from the significance of 1492, 1776, or 1865. You cannot understand American history apart from the significance of those dates. In the Bible, the answers are in the back. We now need to go back and reread the promises in light of the fulfillment that has come. We've gotten this thing backwards, you see. We think that we can't preach the gospel to Christians, and we think that we can't preach doctrine to unbelievers. Paul was obviously then confused. Romans chapter 1, to the saints who are in Rome, I can't wait to get there so that I might preach the gospel to you. Apparently Paul hadn't read C.H. Dodd. No, 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 Paul, to the unbelieving, we preach the gospel. And then for the believers, we really get into the meat of the word, implying, you see, that the real value of the gospel is getting people in a kind of forensic way to tip into the kingdom. But once they've tipped into the kingdom, the gospel really doesn't have a whole lot to do with changing their lives. Consequently, we have to invent all kinds of crazy ways to engender sanctification. Like, what would Jesus do? Who in the Sam Hill knows what Jesus would do? Jesus did some stuff that you ought never to do. Is this sanctification engaging in subjective nonsense? What would Jesus do? Friends, have you read the New Testament? The burden of the New Testament is what Jesus has done. See, this is a disjunction that the Bible itself doesn't make, separating the word from the gospel. Listen to this verse from Colossians. We proclaim him. Subject, verb, object. We proclaim him. And now you've got this wonderful participial phrase that follows, teasing out the moral implications, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? Here's the purpose clause, so that we present everyone mature in Christ. Now, you want to talk about a philosophy of ministry? Everything you need is right there. Is there a place for preaching the ethical demands of the Bible? 
Yes. Is there a place for speaking to husbands and wives? Yes. Is there a place for establishing a Christian work ethic? Yes. Is there a place for challenging our children with certain moral behaviors? Yes. Yes. But never in a way that would be acceptable in a Mormon temple, an Islamic mosque, or a Jewish synagogue. You understand, friends, if our message is palatable to them, then it's not Christian preaching, even if it comes out of the Bible. It's not in keeping with the nature of the Scriptures themselves. One morning I walked into class, and one of my students, who has since become a very good friend, his name is Carl. I said, Carl, how was your Lord's Day yesterday? He goes, oh, it was great. I said, how was the preaching? Oh, fine, fine. What did your pastor preach about? He said, oh, he preached about money. Really good. The Bible says a lot about money. I said, did he do so in a way that was any different than you would find from a book in Barnes & Noble? He thought about it for a moment and said, I don't think so. And so we spent the next 30 minutes talking about the one who, though rich, made himself poor so that by his poverty he might make other people rich. That's how Paul talks about money. Is it doing any good for the men in your congregation to get up and rail at them every week about Internet pornography? It ain't doing any good. Have you figured that out yet? Rather... You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You see, friends, I can say to a man, you ought to love your wife in a selfless way. Wonderful. Dr. Phil will tell you that. (laughs) Louis Farrakhan will tell you that. There's nothing distinctly Christian about that counsel. What is Christian is this. My friend, you have a command. Love your wife sacrificially. Now, consider the source of that command. It comes from Jesus Christ. Consider the motivation behind such a command. He himself has loved you by giving himself up for you. Consider the source of power that can enable you to be faithful to that command. Jesus in his redemptive work has purchased the new covenant gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And my dear brother, when you fall short of that command, and you most certainly will, What must you do? You go right back to that person and his work on the cross to find mercy and grace and forgiveness. This is how we preach the moral demands of the Bible, recognizing that moral imperatives are always grounded in redemptive indicatives. So we must never give to our children a list of commands to obey divorced from their proper gospel context. We may say to our children, obey our parents in the Lord, obey our parents in the Lord, obey our parents in the Lord. But if what gets communicated is, obey your parents, what have we done? We've stripped them of the evangelical motivation. We sever them from the only source of power by which they can obey. We fail to show them the one to whom they can turn when they fail to obey. And worst of all, we've invariably communicated that they earn the favor of God when on occasion they manage to obey. That is not Christian parenting. At that point, we've not come close to producing a Christian child. Instead, we've produced a clean-shaven, straight-laced moralist who will wonder, after all, why is it that I need Jesus Christ? Just like the older brother and the son of the prodigal, in the prodigal son story. Right? Maybe you need to set aside all of the Sunday school material you've heard since you were children and look at that story in a fresh and discerning and critical way. It's a story about two reprobate sons. Younger brother, licentious. Older brother, self-righteous. Younger brother, relativist. Older brother, legalist. Younger brother, irreligious. Older brother, religious. Younger brother, immoral. Older brother, moral. Younger brother needs to repent of his scandalous sins. Older brother needs to repent of his damnable good deeds. Point. Both are in need of grace. The real problem is one knows it and the other is clueless. Who's the real prodigal in that story? Do you really think the people in your congregation don't need to hear the gospel anymore? So much more we could say. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Isn't that amazing? It certainly isn't very Barna-esque. You say, what do you mean? Well, it certainly wasn't what people wanted. It certainly didn't address their felt needs. No, the gospel never addresses felt needs. The gospel makes you aware of needs you didn't know you had. The Jews, they wanted signs and wonders and miracles. Does that sound familiar to you? The Greeks wanted philosophy and mysticism and intellectualism. Sounds just like the Pacific Northwest where I live. And you see, friends, we are living in a day now when people from our own subculture, our own community are telling us, if you want to have a really successful church, and of course, as defined by bodies, bucks, and buildings, then find out what people want and provide that very thing for them. Paul's approach was so radically different. Apparently, Paul wasn't very good at contextualization. What people demanded from Paul, he refused to give. What they had no interest in hearing, he continued to supply. (laughs) Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. You know what this means, those of you aspiring to pastoral ministry, and I say this with gentleness, but I mean it. I mean it. This is why we must never allow the pew to dictate to the pulpit. You know why? Because the pew will never demand the gospel. You say, well, Art, you certainly don't believe that you will affect the lives of people by being preoccupied with the cross, the gospel, do you? I mean, after all, the cross, it's offensive today. It's offensive to postmoderns, a foolish thing. And what I want to say to you is, oh, my dear young men and women, of course it is. It always has been. It always will be. The glory of the gospel can never be extricated from its obvious foolishness. So come to terms with it, will you? Be at peace with it. Don't attempt to clean it up. Don't attempt to make it cool. You tinker with it and you will lose it. In fact, look at what Paul says and we'll finish. Notice chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach... The gospel. How? Not with wisdom and eloquence. Not with a style of preaching intended to draw attention to myself. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You are to preach a crucified Christ in a crucified style. You get the point of what Paul is saying? You empty the gospel of its foolishness and you empty the gospel of its power. Don't attempt to make the gospel glorious. It is glorious without any help from any of us that God in Christ has come to us, that God in Christ has died for us, that God in Christ has risen for us, that God in Christ now lives for us, that God in Christ now saves the likes of us. Your effectiveness is not determined by the receptivity of your audience, but by the extent to which you faithfully represent the gospel in all of its integrity. You are not a chef, my friends. You are a butler, which means you don't have to make the meal. You just got to get it to the table without messing it up. This is, after all, God's testimony. You don't have to make it glorious. The gospel is already full of glory as defined by the fact that the perishing will always regard it as the weak and foolish thing. God's testimony about Jesus Christ and what we'll see on Thursday empowered by the internal verification of the Holy Spirit. God be with you. Let's pray together, shall we? Oh, Lord and God, I thank you for these dear young men and women, for the grace that you have poured out into their lives. Most importantly, that you have invaded the darkness of their hearts, turned on the light and brought them to your Son. I rejoice and thank you for that grace.
And I thank you, O Lord and God, for your grace and kindness as expressed to the fact that you've brought them here to this place to learn from men and women who love you and love your word and love the gospel. And I ask, O Lord and God, that bit by bit, day by day, class by class, even chapel by chapel, you would be deepening their love and affection for the gospel, preparing them for a ministry where the gospel will be the supreme and central thing always. Not because the books tell us this is the best way to grow a church, but because this is the assignment that has been given to us by Jesus, and anything less represents an infidelity to him. Thank you, Father, for the great privilege. You could have used the sinless angels of heaven, and you use the likes of us, weak and foolish things. For that, O oh Lord and God, we thank you and love you. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.